Welcome to Theodora Speaks. This is by far the most heartfelt episode I have released to date. And I'm dedicating this episode to my father, Edward Wolski, who lost his battle on Christmas Eve to Parkinson's and Lewy body dementia. He was known for the twinkle in his eye and his wit was unmatched. They say the bond between fathers and daughters is strong. And even though I'm going through this grieving period, I can feel it stronger now more than ever. And I really feel that releasing this episode this month, Parkinson's Awareness Month, is to honor my dad and the great work that Michael J. Fox is doing. My dad taught me some very life lesson skills, but most of all, he taught me how to be hardworking and self-empowered. So when he was diagnosed over 11 years ago with Parkinson's, I felt helpless. I wanted to help him, but I also wanted to give back and feel like I'm contributing to finding a cure to this awful disease. So as you sit back and listen to today's episode, please keep my dad in mind because he was always, always welcoming. He made everyone feel like you were family. And we're put on this earth to leave our mark and for our legacy. And so I feel my dad here now stronger more than ever. So I encourage you to tap into the people that you've lost when you're going through a hard time and channel them. Channel their mark that they left on you and pay it forward. This episode's for you, Dad, otherwise known as Big Ed and the Silver Fox. This episode of Theodora Speaks is presented by the Security Industry Association's Women in Security Forum. The Michael J. Fox Foundation and cause is very near and dear to me. Giving back to philanthropic and charitable causes is important in life as it shows we care. That we're grateful and thankful to help organizations that we are passionate about supporting. Welcome to Theodore Speaks, and thank you for tuning in. Today's episode is a very exciting one. Our guest was cornered in an elevator by Michael J. Fox. Yes, the Michael J. Fox founder of the Fox Foundation, and epic actor in the Back to the Future series. Debbie Brooks is the CEO and co-founder of the Michael J. Fox Foundation. She is a wife, a mother, and she started her career at Goldman Sachs, where she spent nine plus years as a vice president in fixed income and asset management. Most notably, Debbie is the recipient for several achievement awards, recognizing her leadership, including Forbes 50 over 50 impact list, Nonprofit PRO's 2020 Executive of the Year, and White House Champion Change Honoree. Listen for when Debbie talks about risk, particularly brand risk. Also listen for when she talks about the moment Michael J. Fox knew that she was the one for the job. If you're struggling with indecision in your career, visit gailkeller.org for more information. Taking calculated risks isn't easy, and I know because I've done it firsthand. And full disclosure, I'm still doing it today. I can help ease the angst about taking professional leaps of faith in your career with one-on-one advisory coaching to group mastermind sessions. I also work with corporations and universities on gender inclusion initiatives pertaining to women majoring in STEAM. I asked my guest, Debbie, 
to come on today to share her personal story around career reinventions throughout her many seasons of life. I also asked her to be a guest because we share a few things in common, including graduate school at Northwestern University, having a passion for the Michael J. Fox Foundation, and we also left careers that we loved and were good at for another career that tugged at our heartstrings in a season of life where it felt natural to take the leap, to take the risk, and do something that aligned to our values. Security Industry Association's Women in Security Forum is a group for both women and men that offers programs such as personal and professional development opportunities, networking events, with the common goal of supporting the involvement of women in the security industry. Recently, my colleague Susan K. Younger and I had the pleasure of speaking at their participation at ISC West in Las Vegas. The SIA Women in Security Forum is a true delight. They're charismatic, friendly, nurturing, respectful, they give back to their communities, they're intelligent and innovative. Their mission is to engage all security professionals to promote, recruit, and cultivate the leadership of women for a greater inclusive and diversified industry. For more information, visit securityindustry.org. So today's topic centers around career reinvention. And it's a special conversation today with a fearless leader who left Wall Street to build the walls of the Michael J. Fox Foundation, which raises money and funding for awareness to find a cure for Parkinson's disease. Welcome, Debbie, and thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. Debbie, and congratulations on being named one of the Forbes 50 over 50. Thank you. Um, it was really nice, not just um, on a personal level, but to really see the the work of nonprofits um, highlighted from Forbes and also for our organization to have that visibility. Um, we feel like our organization stands out as a role model for other groups and who are trying to mimic what we do in their areas of interest. What a great accomplishment. So congratulations. Thanks. So in life, what keeps you motivated, Debbie? Um, you know, I have uh, always been somebody who um, is not afraid of change and new things. It's not so much that I sought it out, but as a kid, I think it, it, as I look back now in retrospect, um, I grew up um, raised by a single mom, moving around quite a bit and starting anew in different school systems, different communities, um, different states and cultures. And so I think it just was de rigueur for me to appreciate, oh, this is another spot and this is different. And it's, you know, how do you find where you fit? And um, it's not so much that I like to change careers a lot. In fact, I really haven't, but I'm just very comfortable in, you know, in a world where um, something's new. And so I've really, I'm motivated by seeing new things, being around smart people, um, understanding not just the what, but the whys. And, um, and so I, I find even today, I've been in the workforce for more than 40 years. And it's just, I just like being challenged and I like letting my brain work and I like being around the people. So, you know, those things come together beautifully in a career, maybe not always, but when they do, it just makes for a great 
um, you know, part of life. It's, it's not everything, but it's a really great part of life. Well, it sounds like you've been passionate about everything you've touched along your 40 plus years. And I was reading an article about you and you were denoted as a perennial problem solver. Yeah, I think that that is one of the um, skills that matured out of just being someone who was always tossed into new environments. And um, if I think about, you know, one of the things I'm, uh, I'm a, I can appreciate now that I'm kind of good at is kind of a, a landscape assessment. Okay, you know, here's what I see um, and how, where do I need to go? How am I going to get there? What's possible? And you, you know, when you, when you're looking at the world that way, you, you'd be, um, it's folly to assume you're not going to have problems, right? So I just think that as you're, when you look at the world that way, you are prepared for the fact that, okay, and I'm going to have some glitches, I'm going to have some unknowns, I'm going to have some surprises. I don't always think I need to see all the way to the end, but I like to be able to see a few steps ahead of me. And, and I think that that skill um, along, you know, alongside ambition or excitement or challenge are the kind of things that really just tilt it slightly so that you really do find yourself as a, you know, kind of a perennial problem solver. And, and I think that that's, um, I, I think that that's actually the work of the Fox Foundation, really. And, and so I'm well suited, it turns out I'm well suited <laughs> to be um, the, uh, you know, the person that Michael hired to kind of be the architect of building the organization. Because, you know, it, diseases are, are problems, that's one way to think about it. But how do you build an organization that can move the dial in the context of the challenge that you're trying to address? And in this case, our organization is very much focused on what does it take to speed drug development? And so that, that is one big problem and we break it up into a lot of small opportunities and challenges and we just chip away at it. So it, we're in that business every day. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the most impressionable things about your foundation is 90 cents on the dollar goes towards research. It does. Um, and it's funny because um, we're proud of that in the sense that these are donor dollars and our work is in service of a community who's putting up capital in the form of philanthropy and has specific you know, desires and wants and deliverables from that. And, you know, it's not our money. I mean, we definitely think of it that way. It's funny though, um, 90 cents on the dollar is um, a conversation that we've been having at the Fox Foundation for more than 10 years. And it's a, it's a perverse discussion or in the sense that it's surprising. Um, I actually am trying to bring that down a little which is not what most people would expect. And it's mostly because we're so efficient at, at raising dollars and every net dollar we raise can expand the mission. And so I actually believe that um, we're trying to spend more money because we only spend about 11 to 12, not even, you know, right now it's actually a little higher than, um, than the 10 cents that's the reciprocal that you're talking about. But um, we're trying to spend more because we're still really very skilled at raising money at low cost. And that means we net net, we can be doing more and scaling the organization's mission impact. And so we're very proud of the 90 cents. Um, but I will just tell you, I'm actually trying to, to bring it down because I think if we spend a little bit more money, we will raise a lot more money and then we can put more absolute dollars to work. But 
even so, even if it stayed at the same level, which it may or may not, it's really important. And even donors who say, hey, I care a lot about those, those ratios impress me. Um, the first thing I say to them is, I get it. We're, we're proud of those. But it's really important that you ask me what we do with the 90 cents. And mm -hmm. so um, there's hardly anything about the nonprofit sector or, or any strategic undertaking that doesn't have many layers to kind of what you do, why you do it, how you do it. And just that simple observation, you can see I'll just go on and talk about it and say, yeah, that's great. But it's really important that you see these, these layers below it. And, and it's true. And what we do with the 90 cents on the dollar is what I'm most proud of. As you should be. And, and I can say that, you know, thank you for sharing that vulnerability because that's, that's a big thing to say. What? You want to scale that back, but you're doing so well. But when you and I met all those years ago, Debbie, my brother and sister-in-law and I in a team founded the Team Fox in Chicago when things were just getting started and you were branching out of New York. And it does take some money. You got you to gotta spend money to make money, right? And to hear to raise money in this fa fact. So I, I love what you're saying. One of the things that we focus on, which is often gets missed, um, I actually don't know how much money we've ever raised, but these ratios, could, you could kind of figure it out. But what we track, our goal isn't to raise money. Our goal is to fund research. So what we really track on in our primary, one of our primary metrics is how much research we've funded. And one of the things that's happening right now that's so um, exciting about our field is that our, our science is expanding quite rapidly right now. And so by the end of this year, we're going to cross over um, the $1.5 billion in research funded since we started, which is about 21 years ago. Amazing. And that's where we realized we could bring in the most value. Yes. And I like in the capital you're talking about to reinvention, right? How are you going to continue to be advanced and, and kind of move things down the line? So it must have been a tough and risky decision when you left Wall Street at Goldman Sachs to become the founder and CEO of the Fox Foundation. Actually, I didn't go from Goldman directly to the Fox Foundation. Um, I actually, it was a little bit more of a stepwise uh, decision. Um, but I was kind of on a path. So I had, um, I'd worked at Goldman for about nine years. And I, I have to say, I, I loved it there. This was in the, from the mid eighties to the mid nineties. So I'm dating myself, but um, I loved my clients and customers. I loved my colleagues. I loved the fun of being in the markets. Um, it suited the way my mind works. I, my, my, I have a math, math brain and it moves quickly. And I was in the capital markets area that was also moving quickly. So loved it. But I really, I was um, in my early mid thirties and feeling like, you know, I'm kind of, I just feel like I wish I had more layers into my life that weren't just work as much as I liked it. And so I, my first decision was really that maybe I wanted to, to leave Wall Street. And that is not a decision very many people make because it's like, it's too good. It's, I mean, it's too good in terms of if you like the people you're working with and you're well compensated and it, and it fits you, but it's, it's almost, it can be a trap as many people have found. And when I first realized I wanted to try to do something differently, it was because I took a 
quick vacation to visit one of my pals out in Nantucket. I'd never been there. And I spent a week there and I was like, oh my God, cooking, gardening, beaches, friends, entertaining. And I just realized I had not made very much room for those things. And so part of it was a lifestyle decision and part of it was a just, it's time now. And for me, I came from pretty um, humble means and having worked at Goldman for nine years, it was beyond my expectations in terms of earning power. And, and we, you would sit around the, the trading desk at Goldman and there would always be these conversations about, you know, what, what, when is it enough? You know? And I just remember other people's idea of when it was enough. It was, they were, they had much higher thresholds. Like I was happy. I already paid off my school loans. You know, I thought this is good. I don't, I don't really, that's not what I'm working for, you know? And so anyway, I chose, I decided actively to leave, um, the, that field, but I didn't know where I wanted to go next. And I thought about that and I realized, I think I just really feel this tug to the nonprofit sector. And so I actually went back and got a graduate degree in social work because I didn't know kind of how do you professionalize yourself for the nonprofit sector. And, and even today, which is, you know, some 25 years later or so, there's still, it still isn't easy to figure out how to train yourself to run nonprofits. That's not a very common thing. There's some programs that have been developed. Um, but I, I, in that journey, I kind of learned more and more about what I hoped I could bring to the nonprofit sector. I didn't have a specific mission of interest. Um, and I started to appreciate that a lot of people in the nonprofit sector have such a passion for doing well and are doing good. <laughs> and I started to appreciate that I, it, I'm not the only one, obviously, but it was far more uncommon for someone with my background to actually want to bring their skills to the nonprofit sector. And so at the margin, I appreciated, well, should I be a social worker or should I run an organization that manages the work of other social workers and leverages the value? And of course, the Fox Foundation is not an organization full of social workers, it turns out, but I, I started to figure out I need to do something in the nonprofit sector where I'm going to combine my passion to be helpful and, and make a difference in the world. You know, today we refer to that as being purpose driven. That is not a term that was around in my day at that time, but you know, I wanted something purpose driven. But I also just thought I'm, I'm going to be able to bring some different skills to this. So I did do some work after I graduated with that second graduate degree um, and just trying to figure out what's going to be next. And I did a little work for a nonprofit that was um, related to uh, Harvard um, Harvard College and Mass General. And I, that's when I really started to figure out, I think I'm going to be best suited to helping build something. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't long after that, that I got an introduction to, um, I got a call actually through the Goldman kind of network um, that Michael Fox was starting his nonprofit. And he was looking for someone that actually had more of a business background than a nonprofit background. And I'm like, well, ding, 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 here I am. And um, a friend called and flagged it for me. And I, I was really drawn to the opportunity because it was going to be a startup. And it wasn't so much that I thought, oh, I'm really good at startups. It's just that I thought that's the place where my skills might help the most. If I'd really paused and thought, am I going to be good at it? I might not have ever talked to him um, because it, like, it's pretty, it's pretty, um, it's intimidating, but I was really just trying to match what I could bring 
to the needs of the nonprofit sector and a little naively, um, you know, I thought, oh, well, I'll just try to build something. And, you know, lo and behold, I got the opportunity to speak to someone who was trying to start something from scratch. And, and that was, was focused a little bit more on startup than nonprofit. And that fit the way I thought about things. Um, when I met him, though, I will say it was really just his clarity of purpose, his, um, his, uh, his compassion, his humanity, his humor. Like I, I heard about the job on a Monday. I met him on Thursday. He hired me that day and I started the next Monday. It was like a complete out of the blue thing, but it was a real match in terms of kind of my, my priors on, oh, maybe where would I be able to help the most? And who I met in him in terms of the values he wanted to bring to the nonprofit he wanted to start. I, I come to this role and I um, had, I really, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, um, I'm a business person. And as you mentioned, my first career after business school was at Goldman Sachs. And, and so when I came to this job and I was the only employee, you know, I had to kind of figure out, okay, what, what are we doing? How are we gonna move the dial? And it's, you know, I did kind of fall back on the perspective that I gained both at, um, at business school, I went to Tuck, and um, up at Dartmouth, and, and, and then also as I added to that perspective at Goldman, and it really was, you know, whatever we raise is kind of our capital, and it can behave however we want it to in tandem with our funders. And when you look at um, that problem solving around how do you speed drug development, you realize, as I did, I mean, I didn't know much about it, but as I started to unpack it, that the government spends a ton of money in general on um, research for diseases. In Parkinson's, they could be spending a lot more, but they spend a little. And then pharma spends a lot and the biotech sector's kind of in between. And you know, as a nonprofit, you're thinking, well, if we raise $1 million, if we raise $6 million, if we raise $60 million, if we raise $200 million, how do we think about what we should be doing with that, those dollars? And it turns out, that is kind of the trajectory of our fundraising over the last 20 years. And, uh, but all, but the way we spend the money is still very similar. And we look for places where that capital can behave in a really additive way, because the other big pools of capital are big. We are now getting to the size that we almost fund as much as the government does, believe it or not. For, for Parkinson's, but pharma is still so much bigger. So, you know, when, and, and you're looking at, a, at a, um, a challenge that spans a lot of different industries to go from aha moment to the drugstore shelf. And so, you know, that's an important exercise um, that we did early and has guided us all along. But it's really, to me, that, that sliver of how we think of things is really about how do you set an organization up for impact? And so no matter how much capital we had, you know, if we, if we were going to only have a million dollars and it behaved the same as, uh, you know, um, $200 million that already existed at the margin, our money couldn't do very much. And, um, and we were, we really mapped out kind of what needs to be done that no one's doing. I love it. So you use the word intimidating, right? Making this shift from wall street, I'm going to say main street, because you're getting into the hearts and minds of everyday people, right? You said intimidating. So Michael J. Fox cornered you in the elevator after your interview, did he not? Yes. yes. So, well, so I, I have this interview 
and of course it's hard to put ourselves in this um, in this place but this is like before Google so you couldn't just go online and get prepared for an interview by looking up the organization it didn't really exist I mean I knew who he was I didn't know that much about Parkinson's you know you couldn't really prepare so it was such an unusual it was more of a conversation um, but he had a little group with him a little search committee and they'd been looking for someone for a while um, unsuccessfully so they kind of knew more that, of what they needed and wanted than i could appreciate walking in cold but in the course of the discussion i could feel how much i really was inspired by what i was hearing from him and them about what their hopes you know as they had been crafting a little bit more of their vision and how it really could be a good fit for me. Um, I finished the interview and I walked down the hall and I just, I like, I had that moment where you just like, ah, oh, you know, you're done. And I realized, wow, I'm sweating. And like, I really, I, I really do, this is of interest to me. And I totally had the conversation that you have with yourself when you're walking to the elevator that says, well, you know, I'm really not, I'm surely not qualified. They're going to find, they surely have better candidates than me, but I left it all on the table. If I'm the kind of person they're looking for, they're get, they know who I am. I, that, that was, that did come out in the discussion and I'm standing there at the elevator and he like walks down the hall and he nudges me and goes, Hey, can we, can we talk some more? Do you mind if I join you in the elevator? I'm like, Oh geez, this is not <laughs> over yet. And then we just had the conversation continued. We walked out front in the building where we were, you know, we were at, uh, Bear, at the old Bear Stearns building on Park Avenue. We walked out front. We're just standing out front and we talked for another half hour. And, and that was really more about what's possible and who he feels accountable to in the Parkinson's community, donors in general, and how he thinks about, you know, the promise that you're making when you're starting something like this. And he and I just saw it all the same way. And, you know, at the end, he kind of looks at me and he goes, I gotta go. I'm supposed to interview somebody else and I'm really late. He goes, but I, this is it. You and I, I think this is it. And I'm like, I agree. I think this is it. And he goes, I'm going to call you later. If I call you, will you take the job? I said, if you call me, I'm taking the job, you know? So it's just oh. really, it was so exciting from the first moment. And, and that connection about, the intentions was really important for both of us. I just got goosebumps from that story. It, that's amazing. So when you know when it's the right person for the job, that's it, right? Yeah. Well, there's, I mean, that kind of kismet is, you know, I'm not sure you can count on it. it, it I don't, I can't imagine ever getting that again, except for maybe when I was introduced to my husband on a blind date, you know, it's just, it's, but when I think about making big changes, and you know you talked about you know this this um you know the, how you're thinking about these important shifts and career reinvention you know i really i i didn't have the training because you couldn't get trained for this kind of job per se um people don't do startup nonprofits very often and if they do they never scale so they're just kind of out of the public domain and and i had i had developed enough wisdom to realize in the in the work i'd done briefly at, at Harvard and Mass General that um, a lot of nonprofits do good work. They just can't scale beyond, you know, a 10 block radius and a couple million dollars worth of budget. I didn't have to be a genius to realize, oh, Michael Fox, that has a chance of scaling. And so it just, it, but to see the right things come together 
is, is helpful. But I'd already made the decision to leave one job. And I do think it's hard, to me, the reinvention, they're kind of gradations of comfort. One is that you know what you're leaving and why, and you know where you want to go and why, and you can see both sides of the trade um, when you're making your decision. And that might take place when you leave a long-standing position and go to a new organization. And maybe they're a lot alike, and it's really now you're just taking, you, you know, you're, you're, you're just trading up a little bit. But this was a pretty big shift, going from an established Wall Street firm for profit into and a place like Goldman, you know, into um, something like a startup nonprofit. But they had similarities, you know. I mean, the brands. When you put those two brands next to each other, it's hard to do that. But you, I had learned importantly the value and the value to me in doing my work of being part of something I could be proud of, and that I thought was top notch and offered um, sustained excellence in terms of how they worked with their uh, stakeholders. And you know that's something I still see in Goldman, I, that was at Goldman Sachs long before I was ever there. And generally, although these, these industries are, are under different kinds of pressure over time, but it still is, a, it, it has that. And Michael, meeting him and hearing those values and understanding what he's looking for, I knew instantly. He does too. And those are things that are important to me. So. I knew that that Michael Fox that can scale. That's another way of saying this brand is something I can build around and lift and and be proud of. And um, you know, so I didn't know it was going to be Michael. I didn't know it was going to be Parkinson's. You know, I didn't even know it was going to be starting something up from scratch when I went off to Northwestern to go into to get my master's in public uh, in um, in the social sector, but. Once I realized that, it didn't feel very risky at all, oddly enough. I probably should have been paying closer attention because, again, you're kind of saying, yes, I can do this, this, and this, but I, there were a lot of things that I wasn't knowledgeable about that I was inherently saying yes to as well. And if I'm a good problem solver, hopefully I was going to make that path work. And Debbie, there's something to values, aligning to your values, right? Finding something in someone that you believe in, and then factoring in the calculated risk-taking that you took. So I'd be remiss not to ask this question because I hear the listeners wanting me to ask this. What's it like to work with Michael? He's an amazing person. I mean, so, you know, I knew I was going to work and meet Michael. I will tell you, I've met a lot more um, celebrities and rock stars and things that I could have ever imagined and I half the time I have to look up to see who they are and I I will say most of the people that I have come in contact are people in his network and they too are really good people but I've just been exposed to a lot of more of the VIP world and you kind of hope someone's a certain way and then you get to know them a little better and you're like eh, maybe not he is everything everybody out there thinks he is and even more he's just He's, he's such a special person. And of course, now he's a special friend. And I mean, I just feel lucky. I've learned so much from him. And he's so funny because he's like, you know, I, I didn't even graduate from high school. You know, it's like, he's brilliant. He's, an, he's the best human I've learned from that wasn't part of my own family. And, and I have some, some mentors, in a sense, from my Goldman days, too. Um, but he's just, he's, he's just what you hope he's going to be. And he's, he's just damn funny. It's yeah. just fun. 
he's wonderful. He really is. He's very, yeah, he's very charismatic. I had the opportunity to meet him at one of your galas a few years back and his wife, Tracy, and they're just lovely, lovely people. You also have another household name within the foundation besides Lieutenant. I heard you're known as the Martha Stewart of the foundation. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's something about, you know, I've been here for 21 years. I'm obviously the co-founder and the founding CEO. And um, it has taken me a while to get comfortable with the fact that when you are a co-founder or a builder of something, you know, inherently it does have my fingerprints all over it. And there's a little bit of a caricature that I've had to appreciate about myself. And so in the last couple of years, I, I have just let, you know, have more fun with it. So during the pandemic, one of the things I um, did was I started to host, um, you know, some social activities for the staff as just breaks in the action. And so I've now several times, and I have one coming up, um, I pull together a little, I, I come up with things where I share recipes and I prepare things and I literally do an hour long, you know, kind of quote unquote show. Um, and I talk to people about, you know, cooking and cocktails and entertaining and just for fun. And I've done some that also kids that our staff children could participate in and it's fun, but it's a little it. bit about you know, Debbie Stewart uh, live. Um, but it's also that I really enjoy the time. I happen to live in Delaware and the foundation's headquartered in New York. And every once in a while, there's a good reason where a whole group of staff may be coming to Delaware. And I love it. I love putting them up. And I love, uh, my husband loves to, you know, show off and, you know, serve a great steak. And, and I think yeah. that people forget sometimes that like, I'm a grown up that has a house and stuff. Cause most really a young staff here, you know, um, it's just, uh, it's a different view of me than they're yeah. accustomed to. Instagram showed me that your husband likes to grill. I mean, it looks like yes. he's pretty good at it. I saw a nice slab of ribs on the grill in one of your yes. pictures. Yes. And he's now prepping um, earnestly for deep frying for Thanksgiving. Oh, nice. Beautiful. Beautiful. So I ask my guests for recipes, so I cannot wait to get a recipe from you. And what I do with the recipes is I house them on my website, and eventually I'm going to create a cookbook from them. But it just helps working women ease their day, right, if they can get a recommended recipe. So I can't wait to get one of yours. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about work-life integration, because you're a wife, a working mom, you have two girls, right? Balance isn't a 50-50 scale. And you've been known to have a great balance of pragmatism and optimism. So talk to me about what that means to you. Well, I would say that balancing work and life, um, uh, one, of the, one of the most powerful support systems I've had is a very pragmatic aspect of um, how you can balance anything, which is having a, a partner that my husband and my husband who is just you know he really believes in what i do he believes in me when i got that call about this job opportunity you know 21 years ago he was standing there right with me and it was actually um, face to face not really a call so he the guy got a call the guy was talking to me about it in front of my husband and my husband looks at me and goes you'd be great at that and the first thing out of my mouth was well 
that's a New York City job or a or an LA job or a DC job. I had no idea where it was going to be. I said, and you're not a city guy at all. Like, I don't even think I should look at this. And he goes, oh, no, no. If you told me you were going, we were, we'd have to move to New York City because you want to go work on Wall Street again, I would say, I'm not in. He goes, but this, this is important. And you, you should do it no matter where it is, whatever it takes. And I mean, I have to say, I still think about that. And I just, it blows my mind how much a difference it makes that I don't have to negotiate with a partner to like make my case for why I'm going to be gone for the next couple of days. And it's on him, whatever the it is, right? Who's, you know, dog walking, kid stuff, whatever it is. And I, he's just always believed so much in what I do and that I'm the person to do it. And so it's been, that has been an extraordinary um, gift. And I don't think that's easy to come by, but I really, really treasure it. Um, you know, I also have been remote for a good part of my career at um, the Fox Foundation. We, you mentioned our daughters, we adopted uh, twin girls from China in 2006 and um, brought them home. And we wanted to raise them in his hometown, which is um, in Wilmington, Delaware. And so I've been, that always also has taken a lot of balance. And so I think that, um, you know, the pragmatism has to be there. I'd say the optimism is, you know, I know if I, if something's important to me, I'm going to figure it out. And so I think that's what's helped me. And I, I am a big believer that work and life balance or just how your career is going to look over time is likely going to shift and change. And, um, and I just had one of those changes recently. I was CEO for the first seven or eight years. And um, when we moved to Delaware, um, I flagged for Michael. He knew I was adopting. He, he actually wrote the letter that was in my file for adoption. I, I always giggle thinking somewhere in China, there's this letter from Michael Fox saying that Jeff and I will be good parents. Um, and, and, but once we decided we were moving and I told him, you know, he, he just said, look, I, I believe that whatever you work out will be good good for you and good for the Fox Foundation I'm in. And so I moved to go remote and at the same time I gave up the CEO job. And it's so amazing to me now to see how I'm still remote, but in today's world, I just shift, I went back into the CEO job last summer that because the, um, uh, my kind of partner who had been CEO for the last 10 years, He's a scientist by trade training and the science is exploding. And he's like, I feel like I got to get back to that. And I go, great. I'm, I'm supportive. What's your solution? He goes, you're my solution. Come back to being CEO full time. And I, I kind of was doing most, you know, 60% of what I used to do as CEO anyway. And so just, you know, the fluidity of what the balance is going to look like and how over time you can do things um, you know, it was partially that I could be remote CEO in today's world. It's also that my kids are now grown and out of the house, you know, so it, it felt easier. And so I, you know, as an optimist, when he said, you're my solution, are you in? And I'm like, I, I literally paused for like three seconds. I'm like, yeah, because I wanted to support him to go back full time to science. 
So I'm like, I'll figure it out. And I, then I said, oh, shoot, I better go talk to my husband. But he was in just like he was on day one. So, you know, it's, um, it is real, um, it's, it's a hard thing to navigate. And I have everything going for me. I had the support of Michael, I had the support of my husband. I had built an organization that, that values flexibility. Um, it turns out I needed to take advantage of it and it worked for me. And, and when I've been remote for 15 years, I can see that that doesn't necessarily impact productivity, energy impact of employees. And so we were very quick to shift our whole um, organization and evolve our workplace in the last uh, year and a half. And so it's not easy to get all those things right, but I, I, I kind of was in a position to craft the solution I was looking for. So I feel really grateful for that. Well, you're, you're amazing. You know, these professional reinventions, they don't have age limitations. And, you know, even though you bounced back from CEO to CEO, I mean, that's still a reinvention because you're in a different season of life and you're doing it with the tenacity, the style and the grace that you have in you. And so as we wrap, Debbie, there's a lot of anxiety today with the great resignation movement that's happening. What is your positive advice as to how working women sift through career reinvention? Um, you know, I, I can't pretend to really appreciate all the nuance underneath the great resignation. <laughs> um, and, and I feel that, you know, there's such a high percentage of it that is probably, um, you know, practical and non-negotiable for people. And um, so to me, I just say in general for reinvention, I, and this probably doesn't come as a surprise, I, I think you need some real clarity and insight into what you do well and what excites you and motivates you about spending, you know, eight to 10 hours a day, you know, on a certain kind of task. And the answers to that, I think, um, I think it's hard for people who are young in their career to be, it's a little scary to think, to say, I'm good at this, but I'm not good at that because it's, it's scary to say you're not good at something because you think it's going to close your doors. Um, but certainly as you're maturing in your career, I know all the things I'm great at and the things I'm not as good at, I'm still good at them, but I don't need to be great at them because I can put people around me that are great at those things so that it gives me the freedom to be great at the things that I'm uniquely great at. And so I feel like that insight an appreciation and it, it, it might take different kinds of skills at different stages of a career. I think that's a key attribute, you know, to really understand. And one of my, one of my favorite interview questions, not that I'm a great interviewer, but I always like to ask people, how will you know six months from now, if you take this job that you were right? Like, what are you going to be looking for? And I think that that's a fair question to ask yourself when you're thinking about making a shift and a, and a pivot is how will I know? Like you, you can't, you know, you're going to end up saying yes to something and you obviously say yes to something that you think is going to be the right balance and right opportunity. But how will you know six months from now that you're right? And, and I think that that helps do that kind of deep probing questions about what is really going to make me happy and what's going to make a difference. So Debbie, as Whitney Houston would say, how would you know? Yes. How do you, how do you know? Answer your own question. Yeah. Pretty please. And, and so I do think, um, you know, I've seen how unlocking 
the right mix for somebody really does help them thrive. And I've seen it even within the Fox Foundation. When we have strong performers, you know, I, we're not afraid to ask them, are you willing, are you interested in other things? Like, it, and it's the hardest thing for the boss of the, heart, the strong performer because they can't bear the idea of losing them. They're so impactful in that team. But you really want to get, and I've watched people shift a gear and go to a completely different area and thrive further. And I'm a big believer in, you know, the day, to me, the Fox Foundation, what I'd like it to be and what I've seen it is capable of being is someone, it's just one of the best jobs someone will ever have. It might be their first job, it might be their last job and their forever job. But it's just look for a place where you just know I am going, I'm going to be able to figure out who I am and what I bring and I'm going to enjoy doing it and I, I, I'm going to get well compensated for it. These are all things that are hard to, to get the right balance in. but. I just know that when someone's given the chance to authentically show up and bring their stuff, they thrive. And when people thrive, they, it, I think it goes beyond what they can do in their work life. I think it actually spills into the joy in their broader life. Well, Debbie, that's beautifully said. And I want to thank you for spending time with us today and opening up your heart and your stories with our listeners because they're very motivational and inspirational. And I wish you continued luck and future successes. Oh, thank you so much, Gail. It's really fun to share a little bit more. I'm not so great at talking about me, but I, um, but I get that helping people see the trajectories and what they were thinking and how it, was go how it goes and, and even what helps you stay motivated, excited about it. It is all part of, the, uh, of, of how people feel, get excited about the choices they're making. Yes, and maybe feel more confident and feel like it's less of a risk and more of a one step foot forward, right? And that's all, that's all it is, right? I will say, I do see a trend, if I can say one more thing about this, yes. where people um, are, seem more willing to move a lot. And there, I do see, and I mean, people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s at different stages who want to move a lot because they think that's a way to upgrade their salary, which is often the case. But I find that um, moving a lot, you, you aren't, if you're not in an organization long enough to really get how it works, you are not able to put your contribution in context. And, and I do think that um, over, people are going to work for 40 to 60 years. Like, you know, people who are starting today, they're going to work for a really long time. And this idea that before, in 15 years, I have to have been promoted seven times and be at the top of my game. I think that that is a little folly. And so I would encourage people to make sure, listen, you need to get compensated, you have demands, you have trade-offs you're making and, and you gotta get there whatever works for you. But at the margin, the angst of needing to change and flip and to do it fast without reaping the real um, subtleties that you're gaining in your roles, and in your the skills you're building it's you know it you might be leaving something on the table so it's just another thing i'm seeing is that this hyper move 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 my friends are moving you know it looks like it's bad to stay in one place for a long time i think that's wrong i think yeah. that's where the real magic of how you're going to lead your confidence and decision making how you've mastered your craft that is what ultimately is very valuable in the long run in someone's career 
Correct. Correct. And it's also that, you know, the loyalty, where's the loyalty today? Yeah. So, you know, well, I, actually you can make the case that that's an investment in the loyalty in you um, is to really get the right skills and to hone the things that may only come, not always, but may best come with longer service, not, not short jump around service. So a side note is I, you know, I have this podcast as my thought leadership. I'm writing a book it's nonfiction, five characters all around steam. So they all take on one of the industries. And in one of my chapters, someone is very, very passionate about supporting Michael J. Fox Foundation. So I love it. Yeah, I'm big into philanthropy. You and I share a lot in common. We both went to uh, Northwestern to get graduate degrees. Mm -hmm. Um, My husband cooks, maybe not as good as yours, but he cooks. So I'm grateful (laughs) for that. I love to cook. Division of labor is good enough. If it's excellent, it's all the better. That's right. Division of labor and time, right? Mm-hmm. And time. And we both left lucrative careers to start something. I'm, you know, more in my infancy, you know, a year and a half in, but it's risky business. You're like, I yep. left something cush. I worked at Microsoft. I miss buying that stock at a discount. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um, but, you know, I all, yeah. but you said something was tugging at your heart and that was happening to me too, right? Yeah. And you said you went to Delaware and you saw just life. Yeah. I've got two little girls, two and mm-hmm. four right now. And I'm like, you know, life's too short. Yeah. I've got to give this a go. Can always go back, right? Well, great luck, good luck, and uh, and I love that uh, someone who cares deeply about the Fox Foundation is going to be in your mix on your uh, on your book. And um, thanks for thinking of me. I'm glad I could uh, participate. Yeah, well, let's definitely stay in touch, Debbie. And thank you for your time. Special thank you to Debbie for sharing her ambitious tenacious, intelligent, and kind self with us. It truly was an empowering conversation. And thank you to you, our valued listeners, and to New Voice Studios for producing Theodora Speaks. Listen for what tugs at your heartstrings. Find a career that aligns to your passion and values. Balance is key. Debbie's balance is being pragmatic and optimistic. And lastly, make an investment in the loyalty in you please visit gailkeller.org to sign up for my newsletters. I can help you successfully fail forward in your career without the crash and burn. Thank you and stay courageous. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.